While we make every effort to broadcast the correct information, we are still learning and by no means are White Coat Warriors hosts or guests acting as healthcare physicians or professionals. We will double check the facts presented, but realize that medicine is a constantly changing and complex science and art. We are simply presenting our views and the views of others on our experiences in the healthcare system and will be as evidence-based as possible based on our own experiences. We welcome any comments, suggestions, or corrections of errors. By listening to this podcast or reading this blog, you agree not to use this podcast or blog as medical advice to treat any medical conditions in either yourself or others. Consult your own physician for any medical issues you may be having. This entire disclaimer also applies to any guests or contributors to the podcast or blog. Under no circumstances shall White Coat Warriors, any guests or contributors to the podcast or blog, or any employees, associates, or affiliates with White Coat Warriors be responsible for damages arising from the use of the podcast or blog. everyone. This is Rachel Bartholomew, host of White Coat Warriors podcast. And today we're joined by a very special guest who has dedicated much of their work and writing to amplify the stories of White Coat Warriors. She is the definition of also highlighting all of the White Coat Warriors out there, Maya Dusenberry. Maya has an impressive career working as a journalist, an editor, and an author of Doing Harm. The truth about how bad medicine and lazy science leave women dismissed, misdiagnosed, and sick. That is a title I am here for. (laughs) And it was actually listed as one of the best books of 2008 by NPR and Library Journal. In addition to her writing, Maya is a public speaker. She delivers regular talks on the subject of gender bias in medicine to groups of students, healthcare providers, patient advocates, researchers, and the biomedical industry. Welcome, Maya. Thanks for being here. Thanks so much for having me. You are amazing. I am I'm so, so excited to dive into this. Um, you highlight white coat warriors, and I just, I love it. But I always know that with highlighting white coat warriors yourself comes a whole slew of your own personal experiences. And, you know, in your book, uh, Doing Harm, your very first words detail your personal experience of getting a diagnosis of an autoimmune disease. Can you share with the listeners a little bit about when you started to get a sense that something was wrong and kind of what your first steps were in, in diving into your diagnosis? Yeah, absolutely. So I developed rheumatoid arthritis when I was 27. And at that point, I had been, you know, very healthy, really hadn't interacted with the medical system much beyond for, you know, routine reproductive health care. But it was a couple weeks after I had a pretty bad flu, and I woke up with some joint pain in my fingers, and it kind of went away after an hour or so. And then over the course of some weeks, it kind of got worse. It spread from my hands to my feet and then my knees and elbows um, and also started kind of lasting longer throughout the day. So it was a pretty kind of classic onset of RA. And so it wasn't very difficult for me to kind of Google (laughs) and see that that might be a possibility. So, you know, my own, I talk about in the book, my own personal diagnosis story was actually pretty straightforward. You know, I 
I was diagnosed within several months. Um, and I think in part that was because it was such a kind of textbook case and it was so sudden that it was, you know, um, pretty easy for me to get doctors to, you know, take me seriously. And, and then when I kind of initially went to a primary care doctor and they did lab work, um, my blood work did not show any, you know, objective signs of inflammation, but by the time I saw a rheumatologist a few months later, it definitely did. So it was kind of a pretty, pretty easy diagnosis to make. Very interesting. And I, 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 I want you to educate me a little bit on this because when you hear arthritis, most of the time you think old people, (laughs) like I know that's my misunderstanding of it. Um, so, so, you know, being that young and getting that diagnosis and, and it seemed like it came on so suddenly from a random instance, like, did you have this the entire time and it was slowly building up? Did you just like suddenly have the symptoms come out of nowhere? Um, and like, what's kind of the understanding of of arthritis as a, as a young person, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the arthritis that's common among older people is osteoarthritis, which is um, more of a sort of like wear and tear on your joints. So it makes sense that, you know, after many decades, some people kind of develop that. Um, and that's really, yeah, like kind of the lining of the joints has gotten kind of eroded over time. But the kind of of arthritis I had is rheumatoid arthritis, which is an autoimmune disease. Um, so what's happening is that the immune system has made a error and and has started attacking the lining of the joints as if it were you know an foreign invader um and so that's why you know it is more common um i think 27 is still fairly young but um among you know 20s 30s 40s um is is pretty common and so yeah it's more you know i think part of this category of autoimmune diseases which um can attack kind of any part of your body and are all have kind of the fundamental uh, root cause, which is something has gone wrong in the immune system and it's now turning against yourself. Um, And so once I got sick, I got really interested in learning about autoimmune diseases generally because these diseases are becoming more common and they're more common among women. So depending on the specific disease, Overall, I think 75% of autoimmune patients are women. Um, And so part of why uh, that experience really prompted me to write this book was kind of wondering why it is that there isn't more kind of public awareness about these conditions and also why so many other autoimmune patients um, are not as lucky as I was and and really have a really struggle to get diagnosed in a a timely manner. Yeah, it's so interesting that often you know, when we think of these types of conditions, we, we just generally assume that everyone goes through it the same way. And I think putting a gender lens on conditions that impact both men and women is so important because we do have differences and we do go through it very differently. So it's so interesting that you bring that up that, you know, women are experiencing this a lot more, you know, so your, your journey to get diagnosed was a pretty straightforward journey. Um, and that's not like everyone's journey. How did your your personal health experience inspire you to write Doing Harm? And why is it so important to hear the stories of women who've had to fight for themselves and be their own advocates in the face of the healthcare system? 
Yeah. So yeah, like I said, I think the first step was just kind of realizing that autoimmune diseases are so common and sort of under-recognized broadly. And then, you know, I just kind of realized that as somebody who had been so healthy up until that point, you know, I had thought about gender bias in medicine kind of through the lens of reproductive health care. And I, you know, had worked before I became a journalist, I worked in reproductive rights advocacy. So that was always a major part of my writing. But I realized that as a sick person now, I, I really hadn't given much thought to how well the medical system was equipped to care for me if I were actually seriously ill. And so as I kind of thought about that, kind of previous like bias I had as just a healthy person who was kind of seeing the system through the lens that, you know, was most relevant for me, I, I started to think more about how gender bias was affecting medicine beyond reproductive health issues. And yeah, and, and as you said, I, you know, it's true that my experience was much more straightforward than a lot of people. And as I started kind of tuning into the issue, I heard from so many women, you know, just friends and people in my network, who had stories of being dismissed and misdiagnosed and, you know, having their, you know, West Nile virus attributed to depression or, you know, what's a pericarditis, which is a heart condition that causes symptoms similar to a heart attack. I had a friend who was told, you know, you're just stressed from law school. Um, and so I realized that, uh, so many women had experiences like these and, and that I didn't really quite understand kind of what, why that was happening. What were the, there clearly seemed to be these gender stereotypes at play that women were hysterical, that they were unreliable reporters of their symptoms. And yet I wasn't entirely sure where that stereotype came from and what the kind of histories and systemic problems were that explained it. Wow. <laughs> That's, that's, I mean, that's a huge book to unpack as it is, right? I'm like, you know, we highlight stories here and I just know the amount of women that I talk to on a daily basis, even outside of White Coat Warriors that just were dismissed. I'm going through it right now personally as well. It's, it's very much a thing. And, um, I'm so interested to kind of dive into, into, what you found when you, you started to dive in. Um, but you know, you highlight a lot of, of stories in your book, um, of different women and their backgrounds. How do you select these women? What do you think our listeners can learn from their stories? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I, you know, it's sort of, I collected stories in a variety of ways, you know, first kind of initially through just my friends and friends of friends, I put out a call for stories on social media and through my email. At the time I was the editor of the blog Feministing, a feminist blog. And so I put out a call on, on that and, um, you know, a, a Google doc that people filled out and got close to 200 stories that way. Um, and then followed up with some of those women who to hear more in depth about their experiences. And as I got further in my research, you know, and was talking to a lot of patient advocates and, and people involved in, in patient communities uh, or doctors who specialized in particular conditions, they could often point me towards a particular patient who had a compelling story or who kind of had a story that illustrated something I was hoping to, to show in the book. So yeah, and you know, I think there's so much to be learned from those kind of stories. You know, I think to me, it was really powerful to realize 
how many of the women that I interviewed about their experiences talked about feeling like as individuals, it was so hard to really understand those experiences as part of this larger pattern and these systemic problems, because, you know, you're an individual just seeing one doctor. It's easy to assume that, you know, it was just one bad apple or they were having a bad day or, you know, maybe you could have done something more to advocate for yourself. There's a lot of, I think, taking the blame on yourself and starting to kind of doubt yourself, mistrust, yeah, either either mistrust your own reports of your symptoms or just kind of feel like there must have been something about the way you presented or or reported your symptoms that made them easy to dismiss. And so I think to me, one thing that women's stories can do is is really help to show that it isn't just you, you know, that this is a problem that so many different women face and that there are real reasons for that, that it's not an individual problem, but a more systemic one. 100%. And I think it goes so deep. Like it, it, it's not just educating ourselves and what we're experiencing and trying to understand the symptoms, but you know, how we train our doctors to how we, you know, teach our girls how to talk about their reproductive health. I'll, you know, it, it's so deep rooted and it's so ancient in the way that it's been done and it's slowly changing, but I think we still have a very, very far way to go. And I think, you know, this kind of goes into my next question about Dr. Google, right? You talk about in your book, the challenge of, and the power of medicine, when you talk about, you know, women sharing their stories, especially through online forums and harnessing the power of the internet. But I feel like healthcare professionals, and this has happened to me as well, you'll bring information that you find, you know, to the table, to your doctor, and and they will dismiss you and ignore you about what you're bringing forward. Can you talk to kind of the power of the internet and the web and just doing your own research as a patient when it comes to being an advocate for yourself? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, yeah, it's really infuriating when I hear hear those kind of dismissive comments from from doctors about patients googling because, um, I mean, at this point, <laughs> I mean, you would be crazy not to to do that. You know, there's so much health information online that um, wasn't accessible to previous generations that that does make it easier, especially if you are, you know have a degree of education and health literacy to kind of sift through the information that's out there, it's quite possible to to at least narrow down the possible diagnoses if before you've been diagnosed, which I did, you know, and so many of the women that I interviewed, especially folks who had conditions that are really marginalized and are, you know, undertaught in medical schools, it is just easier for anybody to <laughs> to find out what they have by doing their own research online and then going into a doctor and having it confirmed, which, yeah, a lot of the women that I interviewed ended up doing that in order to get diagnosed and often had seen, you know, many, many doctors who didn't make that diagnosis properly. And then even for women, once they're 
they have a diagnosis. There's just such a wealth of knowledge in, in so many patient communities. Again, especially if it's a really marginalized condition, I think just the validation that those communities can offer is really valuable and something that is, you know, not is just serving a need that's not being met in medicine itself. But also just like very practical um, information and advice, you know, advice about how to manage your symptoms or how to find experts. Uh, All of that is really valuable. And I think that, you know, doctors should be recognizing that they should feel like those communities are partners in the goal of of caring for their patients and and you know the reason that they don't i think is to some extent i I understand that there's a real fear of like the misinformation that's on the internet and and that's true you know like it is easy to fall prey to bad information and and actors who are you know trying to sell you things especially when you're desperate (laughs) But I think that we can have that conversation while also recognizing that there are a lot of good things that those communities offer and also that the reason people turn to that internet and those communities is because they are being failed so much by mainstream medicine. I love that you brought up the community piece. I I will say it again and again, Every single condition pretty much has a community of people online that you can connect to. And like, they were life-changing for me as a cancer patient, like just the things that they share that a doctor is never going to understand. Like they're never going to understand because they don't personally go through it. They may see it from each patient that comes in that does deal with it, but that true raw reality of like the mental, the physical, the spiritual journey of going through something, that's the rawness of it comes from those communities and the the patients that are really experiencing it every day. And it's like, it's a collective place to share health information that's from multiple doctors around the world. Like why couldn't that be more um, effective and brought to the forefront and part of medicine. It, it's so, so important. So yeah, thank you for bringing that up. I absolutely adore, adore community, specifically Facebook groups. I think that's where everyone seems to spill their guts a little bit. And there's a lot of connection <laughs> of patients too, which is amazing, but, um, all right. So let's go into your book. I have your book. I read it. It sat on my desk and I'm like, I should bring this to the office and let more people read it. Uh, So now it is at the office. I think somebody stole it and now is reading it. So it is somewhere, but tell us a little bit about a quick summary of the book and why specifically women's health hasn't been given as much attention as men's health has. Yeah. So In the book, I kind of lay out two big problems that I think really impact women's medical care. The first is that there's a knowledge gap. So for decades, women were really left out of a lot of clinical research. Um, They were underrepresented in studies, and there was this kind of assumption that we could study men and just extrapolate those results to women and that that would just be fine. And the reasons for that, there were a number of reasons, but one was that it was thought that kind of women's hormonal states and cycles made them a more kind of complicated uh, group of research subjects. And it was kind of easier and and simpler to just study men who were seen as more homogenous. 
And there are also, of course, concerns about fetal harm if women accidentally became pregnant during studies. But the upshot was that for really until the early 90s, there wasn't a kind of consensus that we needed to be including both sexes in, in studies and analyzing results to see if there were any differences between men and women. And over the last few decades, we've kind of learned that there, there are often differences that kind of matter clinically, you know, so women tend to have different kind of side effects or effectiveness of various drugs for different conditions that affect both genders. Women can sometimes have different symptom profiles or risk factors. And so a lot of that knowledge has not been fully incorporated into medical education yet. And so we're kind of playing catch up. The other big issue on the knowledge gap is that a lot of conditions that disproportionately impact women have kind of just been neglected entirely. And so especially conditions that are, you know, more chronic and cause subjective symptoms like pain and fatigue have really been just low on the research agenda. Um, so conditions like fibromyalgia, chronic fatigue syndrome, vulvodynia, endometriosis, you know, a lot of these really common conditions um, have been under-researched and are really understudied. And then the other big problem I talk about, which is very much entwined with the, the knowledge gap, is the trust gap. Um, so this is this tendency to dismiss or normalize or psychologize women's symptoms. And as I kind of dug into the research, I realized that this is really rooted in this history of the concept of hysteria. So this is kind of this diagnostic category that for centuries medicine has kind of put all of women's mysterious unexplained symptoms into. And so, you know, back in ancient Greek times, hysteria was kind of attributed to a wandering womb that was roving about the body. In Victorian times, it was seen as a nervous system disorder. But then post-Freud, hysteria came to be seen as this psychological condition that causes physical symptoms. And ever since then, women especially have been kind of prone to having their symptoms attributed to their unconscious mind if doctors can't kind of explain them physically. So I, that, I think that is really what explains a lot of those stories that I was so confused by <laughs> where women were being told, you know, it's just stress, it's anxiety. We're getting some version of it's all in your head. So I would say that those are the two big problems that I kind of lay out in the book. And to me, one of the biggest takeaways was that those two problems are really mutually reinforcing. So kind of the less we understand about women's health and bodies, the more medicine kind of reaches to this stereotype that women are just hysterical to kind of explain away those gaps in the, in the knowledge that we have. That, that's insane. Like it's just it's, <laughs> it's crazy. Essentially what they're trying to say is hysteria is what's causing your physical symptoms. So this mental hysteria that we have is manifesting itself into all of these things that they didn't want to necessarily put a label on as an actual condition that women go through. Right. Yeah. It's a very convenient concept, right? When you kind of think about it, it's like, okay, so if every symptom that you can't explain and that kind of challenges your medical authority because you like to imagine that we can explain everything, we now have the knowledge and the, the technology to understand the human body, 
Um, so yeah, anything that seems unexplainable, instead of saying probably it's explainable and we just don't yet know how to explain it. And in the future, doctors will have the tools and, and the knowledge to do so. We've said sort of, no, it must be all in your head. It's kind of inherently unexplainable um, instead of just yet to be explained. Yeah. And I think that's what you see a lot of the times when women will go in to the doctor and, and say, you know, I have pain with sex or whatever. And they go, oh, have a glass of wine or just relax or do some yoga meditation beforehand. Right. It's like, it, it really comes back to this whole, like mental it's in your head thing versus actually taking it seriously as a condition. That's, oh, that's so crazy. <laughs> wow. And, and on the knowledge gap piece, you know, we hear, I mean, some of the things that stick in my head about like heart medication being tested on skinny males when women aren't present, right? All the way to, you know, breast cancer medications to even seat belts are created, you know, with men in mind versus women. Like there's so many things that can impact us around us that never had looked at that gender lens and, and affecting women. And I love that you say it's, it's almost like they took the easy way out. Like, oh, women, they have hormones. It, it just makes things more complex. Let's just make it easier for ourselves. Right. Mm -hmm. Versus taking on the big challenges that actually could impact half the world's population. Right. right, right. So interesting. Um, I'm interested to know what are some of the, the key statistics or key things that you found that were like shocking to you as you were writing this and doing the research. I'm, I'm <laughs> so curious. Um, yeah, let's see. I mean, yeah, there are lots of, lots of compelling studies that have looked at this problem and from kind of various angles. I think one that was compelling for me was uh, this kind of experimental study for looking at how doctors diagnosed symptoms of heart disease in men and women that found, at least in this study, that, you know, when they kind of presented this hypothetical patient who was either a man or a woman, but otherwise had the exact same risk factors and, and symptoms that would suggest heart disease, the doctors were actually able to make the diagnosis in, in both genders pretty equally, despite the fact that we do have this kind of stereotype that, you know, the typical heart heart attack patient is is a man and, and women, especially younger women, are thought to, you know, not usually get heart disease. So there is this bias that does play out in other studies where especially younger women are are underdiagnosed and undertreated. But in this study, it seemed to be equal until they added one line in this in this case study where it said that the patient was had recently experienced a stressful event and, and appeared to be anxious. And suddenly this huge gender gap emerged where the woman was more likely to be referred for a mental health problem and not seen as having cardiac disease. And the doctors or the researchers point out that the doctors didn't actually seem to for the male patient the presence of stress didn't detract from the heart attack diagnosis and actually seemed to kind of confirm it because it is true that being in a stressful situation can increase your heart heart attack risk. And so for men, that was kind of continued to be viewed in, in the proper light that this was, you know, yet another thing pointing to a heart disease diagnosis, whereas for a woman, as soon as there was a hint of anxiety, 
it was suddenly, you know, this is a hysterical woman who couldn't possibly have heart disease. So crazy. Wow. 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 With that in mind. So, you know, the hysteria side of things, you know, you called it the catch 22 when it comes to getting their health concerns addressed, they're caught between if they complain too much, they're labeled as hysterical versus if they don't complain enough, it can't be that bad. Right. Do you have any advice for what patients can do to kind of drive their own advocacy and feel comfortable advocating for their own health? Yeah. I mean, I do, but I do think it is because of this catch 22, such a, such a hard thing to offer advice on because there is that dynamic where, you know, you do have to advocate for yourself. And of course you need to kind of communicate the severity and urgency of your symptoms. And, um, you know, this point came from doctor I interviewed, who's also a patient advocate. And so she's kind of been on both sides of the doctor patient relationship. And she said, yeah, when you're a woman, you're kind of automatically in this position where if you cry, you'll be labeled hysterical. But if you're stoic, nothing's wrong. Um, and I think that catch 22 extends also to kind of advocating for yourself because there is also this sort of, you know, stereotype of the difficult patient demanding too much or thinks she knows more than the doctor, you know, as we talked about coming in with, with possible diagnoses from looking on Dr. Google. And so you don't want to fall into, to that stereotype either, but at the same time, that kind of advocacy is often, uh, required to, to get, the diagnosis or, or the treatment that you need. So I think it's really hard. And I think, you know, some of my tips, I think, are, are just kind of feel depressing because they seem to just like confirm how bad things are. But, you know, a lot of the women that I interviewed talked about bringing a, a male partner or father or even son into their appointments and how that kind of changed how they were perceived and felt like they were taken more seriously. You know, I think that there's value in having somebody else come to your appointments, you know, regardless of gender, especially somebody who lives with you or knows you well, who can kind of testify to how bad things are, you know, and say, you know, this is really, the symptom is really impacting her in these ways to just kind of have another voice kind of confirming, especially for more of those, you know, subjective symptoms like pain or fatigue that are interfering with your daily life, but is often difficult for a doctor or or an outside observer to independently confirm. And so they are really relying on your ability to kind of impart how bad things are. I think the other thing I would say is, you know, I mean, it's basic advice, but just, you know, get a second opinion or a third opinion or a seventh opinion. And, and of course, not all patients can do that. You know, people don't have the insurance coverage that allows them to do that. They don't have the ability to take lots of time off work to keep going to doctor's appointment after a doctor's appointment and, you know, sitting in waiting rooms for a long time. And so, yeah, I, I, I urge people who can do that to do that, but also really want to emphasize that these kind of individual solutions are not solutions to the problem, because it does mean that just the the most privileged women are basically using their resources of, of time and money to overcome these, these barriers and, and problems in the medical system that 
really shouldn't exist at all. It's so true. It's so true. I, I mean, right now I'm on, I think my sixth opinion for a certain situation and it's exhausting and you can't undermine the fact of the mental health aspect of it and how frustrating it can be when you're on those multiple opinions and you still feel like something's wrong and you're like, I just want this small thing done just to give me peace of mind. And it's, it's, it's just so interesting to the layers and the complexities of it. And I think there's very much this like careful stepping that we do with doctors where it comes like around to them being potential authoritarian figures. They could potentially fire me as a patient. Right. And I could be without a doctor period. Um, I know we have that here up in Canada because it's public and you're kind of given one shot and then finding a family doctor is almost impossible after the fact. Right. So it's so interesting how layered that kind of power dynamic mixed in with the mental health pieces of this can really impact, uh, mm-hmm. impact these decisions. Yeah. Um, I wanted to chat about this cause I think this is a really interesting topic that I struggle with a lot as well is the whole concept of bikini medicine where the areas that would be covered by a bikini as you call it. And the ability to give birth tends to be the lion's share, just maternal, gynecological kind of that's where the attention is going to be for women's health. What are some of the other areas of women's health that you think need more attention? Yeah. So this kind of concept of bikini medicine, I forget exactly who coined the term. I think definitely rang true to me as somebody who came to this topic after several years writing as a feminist writer and, and being involved in reproductive health advocacy. I think it's certainly true that there's kind of this tendency for women's health to be conflated and reduced down to reproductive health. So when we kind of say women's health, that's what kind of people think we're talking about is reproductive health related to, yeah, the breasts and gynecological tract and (laughs) often reproduction. And the reality is that, of course, women also get tons of other conditions that affect people of all genders. So it's important to kind of acknowledge that and also acknowledge that when they do get those conditions, there are often differences, you know, so we've talked about, you know, heart disease is a great example. Heart disease is the number one killer of women in the United States and I think globally. And there are differences in risk factors and symptoms between men and women. And because there's been this stereotype that men are kind of the typical heart disease patient, women's unique experiences have been really under-researched. And so that's kind of a something that I think we need to, yeah, when we think of not of women's health, we need to think of those kind of gender differences. And then there are also conditions like autoimmune diseases are, are a great example of, you know, a non-gynecological condition that really disproportionately impacts women. And we don't really know why yet. I, you know, there's various theories about whether, you know, it's rooted in that our different hormonal profiles, you know, hormones impact the immune system. There's potential genetic contributions that just the random fact that a particular immune gene is on the X versus Y chromosome can can lead to kind of gender differences in prevalence. 
So all of those things, you know, I think we need to kind of broaden our understanding of women's health to understand that, um, yeah, lots of conditions affect women and affect women differently. 100%. I wanted to kind of lead off with a couple final questions. And I think one thing is, is not healthcare related whatsoever, but going through the process of writing a book it's a huge undertaking and even an informative book like yourself doing all of these pieces of research, reaching out and gathering all these stories. How was that process of authorship and um, writing a book and getting it published? How was that process for you? Um, yeah, I mean, it was a lot and I, um, I wrote it in a pretty quick timeline. It was under two years total. Wow. Um, so I think I wouldn't have done it that quickly <laughs> um, uh, if I had full control <laughs> over everything. But, you know, yeah, it was stressful. I think it was stressful to be writing this book and also writing my first book because I really thought this was such an important issue and really wanted to do justice to it and also realized that I was also going through this process of kind of figuring out how to write a book, how to do the <laughs> do the thing. And, and so, I, yeah, a lot of times I was thinking like, oh, I just, I wish I kind of knew how to do this before I was writing this book. But I think it worked out. You know, I'm, I'm proud of the book and I'm, I'm proud that it came out when it did. You know, I think I, when I was working on it, it didn't, you know, so it came out in 2018. And I think that at that point there were starting to be more public conversations about these issues, but a lot of times I was like, am I, am I missing, like, why are more po people talking about this? This seems really important. Um, and then when my book came out, it was kind of part of a, a whole kind of trend of, of memoirs and other journalistic accounts of this problem. And, and, you know, that's continued in the years since. So I think that it came out at a good time and I was, I was glad to see like more people starting to write about the issue. That's amazing. Yeah. I mean, every bit counts when it comes to educating and kind of pushing us forward. And it, you most definitely were on the cusp of this bigger trend, which is now, you know, getting into femtech and getting into women's health and just highlighting these things and even the news, right. In journalism, is there anything coming down the pipeline? Yeah. Well, I'm in the early stages okay. of a new book, but amazing. Yeah, I think it will be, it will take more years for this one to, to come to fruition. We'll see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Two, two years is, uh, is you know, enough, but having even more time to really dive in, I yeah. think is very important, especially if it's going to be on a similar topic, right? Very cool. Very cool. Well, I want to kind of lead off with our final question that I usually ask everybody. And that question is, why do you think it's important to take health into your own hands as a patient? Oh, I think that's so important. You know, once I was diagnosed and really, you know, as I said, it was kind of the first time that I did that, that I took my health seriously. You know, I, as just like a healthy young person, it was easy to assume that I didn't have to do anything per se <laughs> to maintain my health. Um, and so it really did change me. You know, I got really interested in learning about sort of 
alternative approaches to autoimmune diseases. I, you know, really revamped my diet. You know, my diet wasn't terrible, but I, I really started to kind of eat in, in a way that was, yeah, kind of informed by, you know, is this an anti-inflammatory thing or <laughs> inflammatory thing that's going to make my joints feel worse? And that to me was really empowering to think about how the choices I could make that that would impact my health, you know, not entirely, you know, I think we can't ever, it's, it's tempting to think that we have full control over our health and we, and we don't. Um, but I do think that feeling like I could eat or sleep and move my body in ways that um, helped me feel better was really empowering to me. And I think that there is a tendency in our culture to kind of give over all of our power to the medical system to just kind of blindly accept their authority. And and when we're sick, just, you know, go to them and do whatever they say without doing our own research or without looking to other sources of knowledge. Um, And I think that, yeah, taking a more active role in figuring out the approach to your health that works for you is, is valuable both because it's empowering and also because it often (laughs) uh, yields better outcomes than just, you know, taking whatever your doctor happens to prescribe and calling it a day. A hundred percent. No, that's, that's, it's so important that it's like a holistic vision of everything, right. All together into one. And what can you do beyond just what doc one, two, and three tells you to do, right. It's so, so important. And yeah, you really are in, in control of that. Can you tell our listeners where we can find more information about you, where your book is? Give us all the details of where we can find your work. Yeah, you can find more about me at my website, which is mayadusenberry.com. I also have a Twitter that I sometimes use. Um, And you can find links to the book there, which should be available anywhere books are sold. Amazing. And potentially this new book coming down the, down the pipeline, we're going to keep eyes out on that one. Um, (laughs) Thank you so much, Maya, for sharing. Thank you for all the work that you've done. It is so incredible. It's so needed. And please, please, please keep highlighting more stories because it's, it's so important just for that one person who's going to listen or read or see that story and potentially change their life. So thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me. White Coat Warriors is a special presentation limited series from High IB Health. Are you experiencing pelvic health challenges? We're looking for participants for our upcoming focus groups. Sign up and learn more on how High IV Health is helping women down there and everywhere at highiv.com. You can also find us on social media at High Ivy Health to stay updated on our journey as we break the stigma on pelvic health.